I feel like I'm, I didn't warm up this morning. I felt when I walked the dog this morning, I should have done some vocal warm ups. No, it's just fine. And I had a big dollop of yogurt before I started. <clears throat> oh, nice and phlegmy. That's exactly right. There's a, there is a, at the farmer's market here, I'm sure she shows up every place. There's a two, I think they're French sisters and they make yogurt, but it's not made, it's made with a different, it's made with a cheese. And I, do, I forget what it is and I should have had it, but it's so good. And it's all these flavors. It's very delicious. So that's what I had this morning. So to get my protein. Yum. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> On today's episode, we have Kyle Dylan Hertz. Yes, the author of The Look Back Window. Author of The Look Back Window. The book came, came out, out August first. on August 1st. We talked about it on our last episode. But Kyle just wrote an article for Esquire where he talks a bit about his experience and that led him to writing this book. So we'll stick a link to that Esquire article in the show notes for this because I think it really unpacks so much about his story. And he was so open and vulnerable. And really, I'm so grateful that he he shared so much of his story with us. Yeah, absolutely. And we should preface this by saying the book is a work of fiction. It's not an autobiography or anything like that. But anyway, we won't ruin any of the episode. And something that we said last week, and we'll say again this week, Listening to the episode, you don't have to have read the book beforehand. There's not going to be anything spoiled for you. So you can look at it as if you've read the book, it will enhance your experience. And if you haven't read the book, hopefully it will entice you to want to read it. It's important to note a content warning before we start. First of all, uh, there is some talk that is explicitly sexual, but also the book and in turn our conversation with Kyle does touch on sexual abuse and trauma and things that could be upsetting and potentially triggering. In case it's helpful to anybody who's listening, the National Sexual Assault Hotline is 1-800-656-4673. And another great resource that Kyle talks about is RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N. Org. It's a really, really wonderful and important conversation, and we're super proud of it. But we also wanted to make sure that our listeners have the heads up that uh, they might need. So there you go. Also, we should talk about what other releases have come out today. Some notable releases. Yes, on, on a happier note. Yes. So the new James McBride book, which I know a lot of people are excited about, I have not read yet. No, it uh, is sitting on my shelf, and I can't wait. The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. And then two books for the thriller lovers out there who want to get a jump start on spooky season. One is Looking Glass Sound by Catriona Ward. She's a really fun writer. And then the other, which looks great, and I have sitting on my shelf, which I hope to get to shortly, is Mr. Magic by Kirsten White. So those two thrillers are out. Very exciting. What a way to... We're like kicking off spooky season early. Mm-hmm. And today's bookstore feature is a seat at the table bookstore at Elk Grove's Bookstore Cafe and Community Hub. Everyone deserves a seat at the table. Our family owned inclusive business will be your new favorite place to shop for books and gifts. Mm-hmm. Meet up with friends, get work done, relax and connect with the community. And so a seat at the table bookstore, Elk Grove, California, they have been so supportive of us and this podcast and they are actually giving a 10% discount off of your 
order when you use the code GAYSREAD10, that's G-A-Y-S-R-E-A-D-1-0, to get your 10%. And we'll do a link to purchase your book in the show notes. But they've been so supportive. They've created images promoting our podcast for their store. And so everyone go support a seat at the table bookstore. So okay, tell so, us about Kyle. Yes. Yeah, so Kyle Dylan Hertz, he received an MFA in fiction at NYU, where he was the writer and public schools fellow. He currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm Jason. I'm Brett. And enjoy this episode of Gaze Reading. Hello, Kyle. Hey. How are you? I'm good. It's so fucking hot here today. It's like I just had to switch from an identical tank because I was soaked from being outside for five seconds. I was like, fuck, like, I can't show up, like, dripping. (laughs) It's only fucking noon. Also, because this is not going to be on camera, I can switch to my gaming headphones and the audio quality will be better. That's great. That's awesome. Sure. They're just, like, unwieldy fucking gaming (laughs) headphones. Uh, they are. Do you play set games or are you somebody like, do you play with friends and go in and play? First of all, tell me, is this better? Can you oh, yeah. it's so much better to okay. hear. Great. I only play Fortnite and <laughs> I got addicted to it in the pandemic in a really like bad way because you play one game and you play for hours and it's little kids who it's a mixture of like, it's because it's like a gay game. Like it's all yes. so many gay people play this game. And then it's little kids. So half of it is just playing with like your gay friends. And the other half of it is like literally 12 year olds calling you a faggot. So it's oh, this like, really like bizarre, funny, addicting, terrible children killing kind of homophobic video game. Because I love video games too, but I don't do that. I don't do that. I'm more like, you know um last of us or something like that by myself i was just talking to my husband about this the other day because he's a video gamer he's playing the new zelda right now for me i need a game i can't just have a wander game i need a straight line give me a mario where i can only go one direction (laughs) i'm fine with that what is my husband uh, too oh funny what do they call them uh, that kind of it's not an open world but there is a name for that kind of game i can't have too many choices because then i just (laughs) choose to go nowhere no, I get it. So anyway, um, I know that Brett and I both devoured the book very quickly. We were just prepping for something. And I was like, this needs to be quick because I need to go make sure that Dylan is okay. I need to keep <laughs> reading the book. And so first of all, congratulations. It's phenomenal. Thank it's you. Truly, it's just a phenomenal book. It really, it's fantastic. I'm I'm excited to talk to you about it because to me it's it is obviously a New York book, but it's also very specifically San Diego to me. For folks, for our listeners who who are unfamiliar, what's your elevator pitch? So in 2019, New York passes the Child Victims Act, which gives victims of childhood sexual assault one year to sue their abusers. So Dylan, who was abused as a teenager has this whole life at the ready for him. He's getting married, he's going to school, and he thinks like the past is the past until this law passes, and he has to decide what justice means to him and how he's going to get it and at what cost. 
you've thought about that because that was a very succinct and articulate way of describing the book. I mean, it's a hard book to describe in a way because uh, this was a huge thing between me, my editor, my agent, my team, because it's it's unlike a lot of books in many yeah. ways. It draws from many different genres. It doesn't really do a, a thing. It, it And it also takes place over a very short period of time. It's three months. So it's a book that is in some ways very difficult to describe that almost when I hear people describe it, I hear them describe very different books. Some people really get the humor of it and think it's very funny. Some people think that it's this crime thriller. Some people think it's a romance. Some people, but it's a, to me, it's been fascinating listening to people talk about it because people truly do get different things from it. And then if you're specifically like a gay queer man, the reading experience is so fundamentally different from other people, especially in terms of the sexual assault stuff, because it is so extraordinarily prevalent within the gay male community that it's there's worlds within worlds for the readers of this book. And it's been very interesting to see how different every single person has responded to it. Yeah. You asking the question, how can he get justice? Does he want to get justice? It's this sort of existential crisis of what does he want to do about this Child Victims Act? How does he want to act on it? What does he think he can get out of it? So you're on his journey of self-reflection, self-discovery. And it's, I don't want to say Sophie's choice. It's not Sophie's choice, but it's really deciding how he wants to take his life in his own hands. And for you, you talking about it being different for gay male readers, I think that's something Brett and I were excited to talk to you about too. I often talk about how Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, the gay romance novel, was something that was very exciting to me because I had never seen myself in a romance like that. And then Brett and I were talking about the look back window, and I said, it makes it makes red, white, and royal blue feel like extra fan fiction, makes it feel so irrelevant and almost silly because I read a book like The Look Back Window and I was like, oh, the romance was exciting to see myself in the world of romance. But Look Back Window, I was like, oh, this is being gay in this country. And, and I actually saw myself, my peers in the book versus I can't imagine myself as the Prince of England. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe it's white. <laughs> yes, of course. But so that I think was so cool, sort of uh, as a word undermines the work, but it was exciting to read something so raw and really feel like it reflected the queer community. Part of the job of any writer is to be honest. And then the fact that I'm a fucking New Yorker, it's a, that's what the frankness is a very New York aspect yeah. of me as a writer, but also the book itself, because it needed to, to me, it needed to sound like a New Yorker talking. And you've lived here. What it's like here is it's just people are what they are. People do what they do. People say what they say. And specifically with queer culture in New York, it's just very that it's just truly honest and obviously queer elsewhere is also honest but the language itself the vehicle for transmission which i think is part of one of the the things of that book is just how honest dylan is with his thoughts his feelings the sex the parts of it is a new yorkism to me because Mm -hmm. there's nothing i could not say here to anyone and that's part of what allows dylan to there's that sex scene in the book where 
I was like thinking about this the other day because I a few people have said this is one of the most explicit books to ever be published by a mainstream publisher, which I think is probably true in terms mm. of some of the sexual content in it. But there's that one scene where Dylan's like getting fucked and then Moans pulls out. He like sucks him off, then comes on his dick, then fucks him in uh, again. And to me, that's just like such a normal conversation I would have with any of my friends. Oh, mm. bitch, I was on Fire Island this weekend. But, <laughs> and I think that's the kind of thing that makes it like deeply, I, I hate this word, but relatable is just like the New York frankness of Dylan as a narrator because mm-hmm. he's just saying that. And gay men too. Like, that's these are conversations that gay men can feel comfortable having with their friends. Yeah. And I think what can read as overtly sexual to, someone who's not in that community to someone like me, I was like, Oh, this is fun to read because it didn't, it wasn't like sanitized. It wasn't sanitized, but also it wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't just sex scenes for the sake of it. No, it was like, that's real life for a gay man. No. And I think there's a big delineation between what is sought for pleasure or escape or release versus what is clearly assault and so you're reading it yeah. in two very different uh, two very different ways and it, it's there's a there's an incredible distinction there so there's never a question of like all right this is an expression whether that expression is for simply for getting off or to medicate or whatever all of it makes sense mm-hmm. in the context of the book can you talk a little bit about how the book came to be yeah yeah uh, I w- was in grad school. I had always wanted to write in the genre of this for mm-hmm. personal reasons. And it, it was in the back of my mind. I was working on another book that, like, in some ways was, like, really shitty, but that I will again return to because the idea is good and it was ahead of its time. People said it was too graphic and too explicit. And I think now that I've done this, people will let me do whatever I want. Once New York actually passed the Child Victims Act, I immediately knew the structure for the book. And when you're writing a novel, you you need that structure. Otherwise, you're literally just like throwing shit in every different direction. And so the second I had the one year to decide whether or not to bring a case against your abusers, I was like, okay, I can speed through this. I know it. The yeah. original version of the book was each um, chapter was a month in the year. So it was mm. January, February, March, and then things complicate that like the covid technically extended the look back window one year so it's fuck what am i gonna do and then it it just didn't work as well and my editor i'm I'm a huge fan of mid-century crime novels patricia highsmith i love black wings has my angels this extraordinary book if you've ever read it it's 75 pages but amazing by elliot shays and so he was he helped me harness the idea into the practice. Once mm. you start, you fly because that's really Dylan's experience, which is I just have this one year to fucking accomplish this goal and then it's gone forever. And that's, you know, uh, stuff around it. Like I at the time was in treatment at the Crime Victims Treatment Center. So there was a lot of stuff that just did line up well to support the writing of the book mm-hmm. because those aspects of the book, like the therapy, the organizations, the stuff of Dylan having to call these lawyers and go through all these processes that had I not been going through 
a similar but very different experience, it would have been much more difficult to write because that shit just takes a lot of research, a lot of time, and just be going on my own journey with this stuff really allowed me to just write instead mm. of have to research. And that was the great gift of circumstance. You right now said you were in a crime victims treatment center. You said you wanted to write the book because of personal reasons. Your name is Kyle Dylan Hertz. Your character's name is Dylan. It is not a, a far leap for a reader to say, oh, this is probably based on Kyle's life. Can you address sort of the, this is not a memoir, but inspired by my, it, it was important for me to tell this story because... Yeah, so this is not autofiction, which would be like the genre that perhaps mm -hmm. it could be labeled in for some reasons of just there's a lot of stuff that like just is not my life. Like mm -hmm. there are many characters in here that are pure fictions. Well, joins my life story and Dylan is a similar narrative arc, meaning the crime victims treatment center, meaning some of the events of his teenage years, certain biographical details. So yes, in terms of that narrative structure, there's some similar so similarity mm -hmm. in terms of the actual, what I would say in class, like the potatoes, like the, the real details of the world's work. A lot of it is very different, not very different. A lot of it is just made up to serve the story. The story. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But did you find in the process of, of writing this, was it somewhat cathartic for you personally? In some ways, yes, because... For example, while I was at CVTC, I talked a lot with my therapist about the writing of this book. And a lot of that had to do with ways that me and Dylan are just very different. Which also, after I got the early copies of the book, I gave them to friends and I was like, tell me, I don't see I don't see myself in this. There's, yeah, sure, there's similarity, but like, how do you see it? And all, all of them recognized it as fiction. Mm -hmm. And some of their, mm -hmm. some of the things they said I thought were fascinating too. They think one of the major differences they, th they said was in terms of personality, not in terms of things that happened in the book was they said, Dylan is nowhere near as playful as you. And I think that is true, which goes back to that question of was it catharsis, which Dylan just had a stronger goal than I had. Dylan had less of a life than I had. Dylan had just more desire to fucking more time, more energy, more resources, because he's not a real person. He doesn't got to eat shit, fucking sleep. He doesn't have these things right. that are pulling him in 40 directions. So he was able to be a lot more headstrong than I was in this regard, which in some ways, I wouldn't say cathartic, but it was helpful to commit to a psychological operation of justice and think about what that might mean for me because I'm different than him. So I got to bounce off a mirror a bit. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it almost seems like you were like journaling a different version of your life. And perhaps if you were a different person, this could have been your life. But it's not a memoir. No, definitely not. I mean, th that's good news to my mother, too, who has been like, <laughs> who has been. This actually, this goes to that question, because my mom, I thought at first she was like, she wants to read it. She's a social worker. Very smart. Mm. Very funny. And I, she was, I was like, there's no like evil villain mother in here. There's not like the, everything I promise you is quite sympathetic toward every person across the board, whether or not they're a rapist, a husband, there's a lot of empathy toward people in this book. And she was like, no, Kyle, she's, I, I don't care about that. She was like, I, 
just don't want to be reading something and learn information that would mm-hmm. cause me a lot of pain to know. Mm-hmm. And she's wrestling with that question you're asking in a very different way, which is she doesn't, she in some ways was asking me like, am I going to see you get raped? Am I going to see yeah. these things happen that I don't want to see? And on one level, I'm empathetic to that. And on the other level, I want to be like, the truth is learn it, experience it, know yeah. it. This is just what happens in life. And my life would have been a lot easier. So not a comment to my mother, but just the world at large. I, my life overall, your life, my husband's life would be so infinitely better if people just actually paid attention to the real details of what occurred, which is part of why the book is so graphic or explicit, because I just don't believe in euphemisms. Yeah. I find them fucking sick. And it makes me really upset to hear all these people talk euphemistically or you read books where it's just euphemistic. And it's just, I think that's bad for the world. Yeah. I know that's bad for, sur- for healing. I know that's bad for surviving because telling the truth is only half the story. The other person has to receive it. So I think we need these kind of depictions of everything in literature across the board. Honesty is half the fucking battle. That bleeds so much into that in this book, the relationship between he and moans. Because this idea of can you hear and can you truly comprehend what has happened to me, I, I thought that was such a fascinating element of their relationship, his kind of reticence to really give him the information of what truly happened to him and would it be heard. You bring up a couple of things that I'm I'm curious to talk to you about. First, I'll address, you say there's no evil mother in the story. And while that is inherently true... I will say you can't help but be upset with the parents because of exactly what you just said. It feels like they're not paying attention. And to speak candidly, vulnerably for myself for a minute, looking back at my own childhood and and my own details of my youth, and I didn't go through anywhere near the same trauma as Dylan did, but even getting bullied at school was normal. Being gay was not normal. But being bullied for being gay was, or being bullied for being different was. And I, I re- distinctly remember conversations that my my parents had with me where asking how I was doing or telling me to let it roll off my back or whatever it was. But it's But there are deeper things that are going on here that we're just not addressing. What you're saying is so true, Be, what you both are saying in this regard, because it really, the with the parents in this book, it's essentially a it's two things one it's a failure of supervision and part of that is just luck because most of the time you don't supervise your kids and they're fine and sometimes it's not and it's i've had to make my peace with this i've thought a lot about this and it's hard because the blame really does fall on one person which is the perpetrator simultaneously there can be other fail- systemic failures that support these kind of long-term abuse situations. And it's hard because sometimes you just get bad luck and bad luck breeds more bad luck. And it takes opportun- it takes advantage of these little opportunities. For example, like those failures of supervision, those failures of attention, that if you just paid a little more, if you just looked a little harder, if you asked a question... Perhaps Dylan would have been spared some pain, but that's hard, especially when you have queer kids, especially when you have just like adoption stuff. There's all these factors that 
make asking these questions harder and it's sad it just happens and you can't put too much blame on the people who didn't do it you can't blame the parents too much for a bully's fist no of course not but you talk about in the book how people parents specifically want the world to exist without violence and that just isn't real life yeah there is violence, there is trauma, there there are bad people in the world, and there are bad things that happen to you in the world. And parents can quickly and easily say, no, I don't want that for my children. It's okay, but that's not real life. It makes me think about my mom, and I love her deeply, but wants her kids to succeed and do whatever, and, and is the first to say, you could do whatever you put your mind to. If I said to her, I want to get this job working as a doctor, she would say, yes, you can do that. And it's, no, I can't. Because I I haven't gone through the 10 years of schooling to get that. And and I think it's just, but she wants what's best for me. And so she would so quickly say, yes, you can. Yeah. But the reality of it is that, no, I can't. And I think the reality of the violence going on in the world around Dylan is something that that parents and some of the people around him in his world are reticent to accept. Or recognize. Yeah, even recognize. Because that was my thing. I remember distinctly being, when I was in high school, we had a very, I went to public school, but we had an extremely thorough drama program. They would do two musicals and three, two play, three plays. And it was an amazing place to be a queer kid. And I was an actor, wanted to be an actor anyways, but that was such a place. And coming to the realization of all these things at 15 years old and starting to like, you know, you know who, that there's something different that something's not the way it is for everyone else. I had a drama teacher who was amazing, who took an interest in me and it was never sexual. It never became that. He really was a mentor to me and let me be. But this is a thing. I remember one night early on, I stayed after school for something and he said, do you want to go to a movie? So we ended up going, he took me, and I remember lying to my parents and said, I'm staying after school for some concert. I don't even know the excuse I made, but this is where I made the mistake. I had him, I said, oh, my my parents are going to a uh, dinner party. They want me to come home and eat first. So can you just drop me off long enough that I can run in and throw the food away? In my head, I'm 15, but these things are thinking. I get in the car. He takes me to go see (laughs) Victor Victoria. Hmm. I remember getting home that night at 10 o'clock and my parents were seated in the living room waiting for me. And they were like, where were you really? Of course, I was this sensitive kid. I immediately broke down, started to cry. And and I remember my mother sitting there and said, what did he do to you? Did he touch Hmm. you? What happened to you? There was this abject fear and I kept saying, nothing, nothing happened. And that thought never even went through my mind until it was introduced. But Coming out later to my parents, which of course was not a surprise when you're in your 20s and still don't have a girlfriend, I think in their minds, especially with my mom, there was this hope or this kind of thing to push all that away because we're not going to really address what's in the room or what's developing here. So when you're getting into a thing of abuse, how do you, especially as a male, talk about this when it's already so taboo in terms of sexual assault? And then how how do you get beyond that? look at these statistics of how many people are, how many kids are supposedly sexually assaulted. And I'm thinking the male numbers have to be significantly higher because how many men are not talking about this? How many boys are not talking about this? Everything you say is so interesting too, for the fact of, of course, like being queer, the political consciousness around that 
deeply complicates any honest discussion with your parents, especially throughout time, because the attitudes towards gay people frequently, even now, are pedophiles, groomers, whatever this right-wing bullshit is. There's just, unfortunately, so much of the map that you can be forced to explore through these conversations that Mm -hmm. you don't choose to, because you think you're just saying, I'm gay, but people here are saying different. And the other thing is, specifically with the statistics, the FBI didn't have male rape in their definition until 2012. So one of the reasons Uh. the statistics are so fucked is because until 2012, it doesn't, you couldn't be a man and be raped. So that's just fucks the numbers up historically. You have one in six, that organization, which is great, but that's the, do you know one in six, like the one yeah, out of every but, six men is assaulted? But, but even their statistics are older based when you're exactly. looking at the numbers. They're like, the numbers are so dated. And the more these studies come out, the more you see that it gets closer and closer to some kind of this is horrible but rape gender equality this kind mm-hmm. of like e- equal n- number which is not surprising because this is just what people do this is just this is just the world we live in it's a violent fucking place and people take advantage of other people it has doesn't matter what they look like doesn't matter their gender it's just what some people do and you are right that there is a, a major taboo with men in sexual assault, especially with queer people in sexual assault. In many ways, I find it horrible and I find that it does not change. For example, there's a scene in my book that is really explicitly about Brian Singer when right, James right, doesn't right. get taken back to the mansion. There are these long, open secrets that everyone knows. I didn't even live in LA, but I knew my friends that had gone there, got the fucking Versace t-shirt or whatever. I, these are things that are just so open and just open in the fact of it shows how little people care about specifically men getting raped because there are what I think of as like rape factories in LA that like my friends have been to. There's mm-hmm. all these things like the, the Boy Scouts is also another rape factory. There's like all these places that really just like boys go to and get raped and just exist that people know about. And it does not matter. And this, of course, I'm saying none of this in the fucking like alt, like Jim Caviezel movie way. Like nothing like, there's no grand conspiracy. It's just people don't care and violent things happen and the rich don't get punished. But yeah, yeah, that scene. Did you read Jason Yamas' book, Tweaker World? I did. It just interesting. It made me think of some of this when you were talking about this, that whole kind of that world in terms of the, again, the sexual component of it for our listeners who are sitting there nodding along saying this is my life too or i know people who this who violence or assault has happened to or for our listeners who are allies who might assume or might think that they need to look deeper this is not a self-help podcast you are not an expert but is there anything that you could say about your experience in terms of speaking your truth or saying something out loud or how do we normalize it? How do we normalize the conversation? The major organization that changed my life was the Crime Victims Treatment Center, Mm -hmm. which is a a program that provides completely free treatment to victims of of violent crime, which and when people say, most people don't think I'm a crime victim. The majority of people actually are, (laughs) especially when you think of things like sexual assault you're a crime victim a victim of a crime like you are involved 
whether or not you want to be with the justice system. And what that means is that in every state, within two hours of where you live, there is a a state-funded, completely free program where you can be treated in any mm-hmm. state. And you, you can go to rain.org or whatever it is and search it. But I I had asked this question because I was in one of this inter in this interview, someone was like talking about this in a little bit of a way. And I was like, I just don't understand why there's not crime victim treatment centers, which is the name of the New York organization. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't get why there's not more because I've lived in San Diego. I briefly lived in, in New Mexico and I've lived in New York and I never heard of this. And it's not like that I hadn't been vocal about shit that I've been through, but it wasn't until I got to this place that I really got the treatment that I needed. And it turns out that they're actually everywhere. I don't know why every person on earth doesn't know about this in America, at least it's shocking to me that you could literally within two hours of where you are. And that's more for people who are outside of the major cities, but if you're in a major city, you can get treated by people who specialize in this, whose lives are dedicated to this for free. That's mm. nuts to me that every person doesn't know this. Yeah. That's that's insane, honestly. So there's that. Then the other answer to your question is be angry. Anger has been the greatest force in my life. It has clarified everything for me. It has made me a better friend. It has made me a better husband. It has made me a better person on earth to just not value certain emotions over other emotions. And for me, that meant really valuing anger, which allowed me to finally feel like I could stand up for myself, Mm -hmm. stand up for other people. And I think that those are my pieces of advice. Go get real fucking help. Don't listen to me, but also be be pissed, be angry. It's How How do you channel your anger into productivity? Do you know what I mean? Like it's it one can be angry about something, but it's people can stew about it or express frustration about something versus turning it into action. That's a good question. I'm a, I'm a very emotional person. Yeah. I actually literally cry every day. I am one of those people who uh, when me and my husband were first dating, it was just nonstop tears honestly because the only way I learned how to live was to not repress anything. The second that I started repressing things, I just turned to bad stuff. I It just really ruined my life. Mm-hmm. So for me, how to channel anger into working well for myself was just like not repressing anything and giving every emotion the value that it, it deserves, which might mean like crying in Greenpoint a lot or just like feeling fucking pissed or happy or whatever. But as an artist, as a person as an ar- and an artist, that was one of my best lessons. I think we all learn that to some degree. Yeah. Maybe because of my job, it's a little easier to be this upset or this happy all the time. But I think all people, especially queer people, I'm sure both of y'all have had moments where you finally stopped fucking repressing shit and it changes you. This sounds so silly, but it makes me think about, and I talk about this a lot, the website Post Secret. It's this guy who, are, are you familiar with it? Yeah. Yeah. Brett, do you know Post Secret? I don't know what it is. This guy many years ago, took a postcard and put it into everybody in his neighborhood's mailbox and basically said, write a secret on this and mail it back. And it was just this experiment for him. And he received so many. And it became this international project that's been going on for many years now. There are books, there are galleries, there's all sorts of things with these postcards. And the idea is that you see a secret on a postcard and realize that you're not alone. You scroll through these secrets and I and I have been trying to practice 
my own sort of in real life version of that, where I'm trying to be more open and honest with my peers, with my husband, with whoever, my siblings, because if you can be honest, they can be honest back to you. Or they can think and say, oh, that happened to me too, or I have those same feelings. And you don't even realize that other people have the same feelings or have had the same experiences. So the more that we can be open and talk about these things amongst each other, I think the more people can see that they're not alone. And I think so much of the gay community, we spend so much time in a closet, isolated, in fear that we don't want to express ourselves. And it's hard. But I think what was so moving to me about the look back window, I was like, so many people are going to read this book and say, this is my experience and I'm not alone. And I just feel like as a community, we need to band together in that way. I also just loved specifically about the book too. I love this. I, I love this relationship with Alexander. I was so fascinated and moved by it. When you describe him, he says as a bitch who could captain his sailboat with his rain-dotted pale blue Oxford skinny black pants and gold-buckled black loafers, like somebody who knew what Martha's Vineyard looked like, who had a friend with a home in the pines, not just a share. And I love this so much because, again, it's breaking down the walls of this perception of what somebody or who someone is who could be victimized, who could be assaulted who this could happen to. Not really a question there, but but I just, I, I think it's, I just, I guess what the thing for me is, it's all about breaking open the idea that it doesn't matter that this can be happening to really anyone. I think we can all relate more than we even realize. Yeah, especially in stuff like this. I've been to like four rehabs, all for trauma, and I've been kicked mm. out of every single one. <laughs> one literally kicked out, not good. But one of the things that it really forced me to do, and this is all when I was much younger, one of the things it forced me to do was to interact with people that I would never, ever meet in my life here. Mm. People that just honestly, like, definitely were homophobic. There's one specific rehab in Tennessee where it was scary. It was terrifying. It was awful. But I met this other person, named this other guy named Kyle. And we were both there. He was detoxing from heroin and had grown up just like in the country, like chopping off like the head of snakes with uh-huh. a, a sword before he cleared under the the patio or whatever they call it there. Not the patio, the deck, the right. something. And porch, the porch, the porch. Thank you. And he goes, I'm talking to him one day after we're playing like Uno for fucking 12 hours. <laughs> and he comes out to me that he had been like molested by his by some cousin or something and he said to me he's like kyle i don't know how to say this to you but i fucking hate gay people and Mm. it wasn't until i met you that i realized just i really don't hate gay people i hate what happened to me so much that i can't even look at anything that reminds me of it and me and him got along really well and even what he said to me even though i understand was horribly homophobic and if i ever heard it anywhere probably outside the confines of a rehab where i'm sharing a room with this person i probably would have reacted a bit differently but it did fundamentally alter the way that i treat certain things like that specifically Mm -hmm. with trauma where you almost sometimes you have to give people a bit of room to be very different than you and then the flip side of that is also hold them accountable Mm -hmm. Uh, i was only going to be there for seven days and 
he was detoxing from heroin and I was trying to get the fuck out of there. So I was not trying to have a social justice conversation with this person. Um, sure. To say his views are vile is true, but what it did inform what I think fiction should be approaching in terms of difference of character and difference of circumstance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about what looking back means to you? You talk about your times in rehab. Dylan in the book is put in a position to reflect on his trauma. Can you share a little bit about what you think that reflection, how that changes him? Yeah, this, one of the things that when you go to trauma therapy that you have to get over very quickly is this sort of just gross, emotional cheesiness of certain elements of it. And considering your life in any regard can feel gross sometimes because it's, I'm just a person, like, someone ever... I don't ever want to spend so much time thinking about myself. There's fucking lots of shit out there that's much better in a physical way, in a spiritual way, in all these ways. So when you get over that, you start really entertaining these exercises. For example, one of them is early in the book when the exercise where you learn how to not be triggered, when you like pick four colors and you find them in the world, something that, because I used to be get very triggered by stuff and just would be lost for days, like basically a ghost. You could slap me, I wouldn't feel it. And my therapist would be like, Kyle, do this. I'll be rolling my eyes like, no, but it works. One of the major things that works is really considering yourself as a child and this idea Mm. of the inner child. And I think the truth is, I think that is the most important tool for looking back on your own life. I talk about this with my friends all the time, with my husband, with with almost anyone I can, which is just, what would your child self think of this moment? What does your child self need? And I think this is a very simple way to put it, and it's much more complex than this But I think navigating the distance between your adult self and your child self is the most life-changing way to consider what you need over time and how you're reacting to things. I think that's it for me, is the major looking back thing for Dylan and myself in this regard. Sometimes we'll just be like at a bar. We literally did this at Metropolitan last week where we were just like, okay, what would child self think of yourself right now? Just like randomly, if they saw you in this interview with your jobs in the background, with your lives in the background, your husband in the background, your dog in the background, what would that child think? It's a fascinating exercise because time can be so hard to look back on and it can feel like such a laborious thing. How can I summarize all these years since I've been young? But I find this exercise is a very easy way to actually collapse the complexities into something that usually Mm. is quite simple. Mm. Talking about childhood and reflecting, my last question for you is, you talk a little bit about in the book about the concept of outgrowing your own life. Do you feel like you've outgrown your life? I have honestly never been this happy before. And it's been the hugest shock to me. I literally walk around. That's the type of shit that makes me walk around and start crying because Mm. I just... My life is so unbelievably full. And, you know, with my husband, who's extraordinary, my friends who are extraordinary, my fact that I get to write and have this book coming out that's extraordinary, the people I get to meet, the, you know, the way I get to also be there for other people is the other huge difference because that's one of the changes is like, I am no longer in need of protection as Mm. I once was. And it is me who's fighting for other people now. It's like, I'm the person who, prevents other stuff. I'm the person who protects the other people. And 
in many ways, yes, I outgrew my life. There's a huge absolute, they just don't even line up in the same ways. There's, it's two different lives. And of course, part of that is just getting older too. It happened quicker than you thought. Sure. It's almost like a snake shedding its skin. It's like a rebirth, outgrowing your old life and now into your, into the new one. Brett is a full-time casting director. I have been a casting director in a previous life. Now it's your turn to be a casting director. If you can cast Dylan in this, in the fictional movie, who would it be? Who do you see? I was, I've been thinking about this for days. I have no fucking idea. Yeah. I think Dylan has to be a nobody. I think Dylan has to be one of those people you like pull from the street because that's part of what makes him the character is just, he's nobody. This is probably just because of what was in the news recently, but the only person that I could imagine as Dylan would be Xavier Dolan when he was younger. That was because he's, because when he first came out, he was playing stuff like that. Kyle, thank you so much for being here with us. It was really a pleasure. I'm so excited for people to read this book. It's a weird thing to say because it's a difficult read, but an important one, I think, especially not only in the gay community, but I think for for just folks in general to have a, an understanding of a perspective that is not something that people typically uh, experience. So thank you for, for writing it and for being vulnerable yeah. and for putting that out into the world. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to the both of you. Literally, this was <laughs> very... E- easy this is talking to friends this was a great good that's how we like time that's perfect (laughs) have a great rest of your day thanks pal bye bye Bye. i loved him what a hard conversation too though if you're looking for more information regarding sexual violence please go to nsvrc.org which will give you resources and plenty of information if you should need it there's another great website too. It's rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. And there is a tremendous amount uh, of resources and support and f- phone numbers and a live chat and places to donate, etc. I think as Kyle talked about, A, not only is sexual assault not something that is something that people feel comfortable talking about, but also that you're not necessarily alone, even when you think you might be. So again, a big thank you to Kyle for his openness and his honesty and sharing his story. The book is really, I want to say special, but that sounds so, it's a complicated word. It's a very difficult read because it's challenging. You this you care about this character. So I hope that this episode inspires you to pick it up, especially from a seat at the table bookstore. And if you have read it already, then I hope that this enhanced your experience having read it. Absolutely. Thank you again to all of our listeners. Thank you for coming As back always. week to week. We appreciate you so much. And again, if you like what you're hearing, Please like us, subscribe, smack those five stars. Five stars. stars. Smack them. Smack the five stars. (laughs) Exactly. Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever wherever it is. Wherever. All of it really helps with the algorithm so we can continue to uh, bring you interesting conversations like this in the future. That's a good drag king name. What? Algorithm. Yes, help algorithm. Give them five stars. Algorithm, that is hilarious. Thanks, everyone. I think that's going to turn up on a post someday soon. All right. Algorithm. All right. We'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm.